That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. I had such a great conversation with my old trifecta and ESPNW teammate, Kate Fagan, for this week's podcast. She recently, just within the last couple months, decided not to re-sign with ESPN and to pursue other interests. And I was fascinated to catch up with her, see what she's been up to, what she has in mind for her next big projects, and also really get to the heart of understanding why she felt it was the right decision for her not to re-sign with ESPN. She was given a multi-year offer to come back and continue uh, what she was doing with ESPN, and she decided not to. So I really wanted to talk about that decision, how she had both the bravery and insight to walk away from the mothership and this kind of peak of what you're expected to want out of a career in sports, uh, the fear and the freedom of what's next for her, what she's missed about doing the job. And also, of course, last time she was on the pod, she was in the process of writing her book, What Made Maddie Run, her second book. Uh, so I wanted to talk about finishing that, the reception it's gotten, how Writing it has affected her view of the work she does and also her everyday life. If you haven't read What Made Maddie Run, I highly recommend it, but it talks so much about balancing our expectations from our everyday lives and what we put on social media, how we interact with each other, how empathy and chemical reactions and psychosomatic reactions are lost over digital conversation and how important it is to understand what we need as people communicating with each other in person, over the phone, et cetera. And so I wanted to see how writing that book has changed her perspective and her answers are fantastic. And the insight she gained from writing that about mental health and other things has really been, I think, a huge part of who she is and coming to the decision to want to do other things. One of the biggest takeaways for me and you'll hear in the conversation, she kind of makes me think about what I'm doing and what continues to move me forward at ESPN and in my career. And I think it's really easy to get stuck on the hamster wheel and just keep doing things because that's what you've always done and that's what you believe is the best thing to do because it's cool to work at ESPN or because you're not sure what you would do elsewhere and it scares you to have uncertainty. And I remember actually maybe a couple years ago even, her wife, Catherine Budig, who is a great uh, yoga teacher and, and just an excellent person in general, posted something that stood out to me on Instagram and it was something to the effect of – Separating success from happiness in order to understand that success isn't happiness, but being happy is a success, right? That if the goal is not that if I am quote unquote successful, then I'll be happy. It's that if I'm already happy, then I am a success. And I think Kate more so than a lot of people is very able to connect with herself on what it means to be successful, what it means to be happy and be able to make decisions independent of groupthink or expectation. And I think this conversation will be super useful for other people trying to figure out their path. And so I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Kate Fagan. That's what she said. So happy to welcome back to That's What She Said, Kate Fagan. You, of course, remember her as my co-host on The Trifecta. She was on Around the Horn his and hers, Outside the Lines, a writer for ESPN the magazine, a writer for ESPNW, Sports Center, uh, Will and Kate. What am I missing? You did everything at ESPN essentially until very recently. Thanks, Sarah. 
Yes, it is good to be back. I did a lot of things, and now I don't do any of them. Yeah, you were you were never a baseball beat writer, though, which I think was a real miss on your part. I know. I should have really gotten in and maybe covered the Rockies or something. That would have been helpful. Go. There you go. Um, when we last talked to Kate, she was still with the SPN. She was in the process of writing her book, What Made Maddie Run. And since then, she has decided not to re-sign with the SPN. And I'm so looking forward to finding out what she's doing now. But let's first, Kate, get back to... Um, now that what made Maddie run is done, um, you were in the middle of writing it when we talked last time. So tell me what that full process ended up being like from, from soup to nuts and, and how you felt when it was finally done. Well, it almost feels like it's still going on in a lot of ways because the, the good thing about a book that I didn't realize a book that, you know, people actually are reading is that some people you might put it out, like we put it out a year and a half ago, but the majority of people are just going to find it along the way. And so I, I feel like it's still, a lot of people are still finding it because um, that's how book work, uh, That's how books work. But obviously the writing part finished like a year and a half ago. And it, it really was a process and a book and a subject matter, obviously very sensitive when you're dealing with like a young athlete's suicide that, it could have gone one way where I kind of went down a rabbit hole and into a dark place because of the subject matter, but it actually ended up being one of the most eye-opening pieces I ever worked on. It made me assess my life, my career differently. And more than anything, it just gave me more compassion for what so many people are going through in this world when it comes to dealing with varying levels of mental health, mental illness, all of that. Like those just weren't conversations that I had even with friends. And now they are like, I know so much more about all the people around me. So it was, it, it really, at this point, I mean, I hope it's not necessarily the defining moment of my professional life, but to this point, it feels like the most important thing that I've worked on and it possibly might be the most important thing I work on. Yeah. You know, I do those campus conversations for ESPNW where we go to colleges and speak to all the female student athletes and kind of help prepare them for the next step and make sure they're getting everything out of their collegiate experience they can. And in a couple different places, people have come up to me, students, and been like, oh, my God, you know, Kate Fagan, we're reading her book. Everybody loves it. And it really feels like it is this um, movement, a lot of places using it in classes. Um, and I took a ton out of it. There was a quote, actually, that you said in some sort of publicity for it that was, you know, for the entirety of your life, you took mental health for granted. And now you consider it one of the greatest gifts someone can have. I think about that all the time. And it really does affect my interactions with other people better understanding um, mental health in general, depression, particularly. How has that affected your view of the work itself? Um, because I know when you were working at ESPN, you were striving not to get caught in the social media trap that Maddie and so many others do. And so you tried to wean yourself off Twitter or not be as involved in social media, but then you found it was sort of a conflict with trying to do the work itself. Yeah. Well, writing that book, working on that book, and then probably most of all was speaking. And I, and I continue to speak on what I learned from the book and a lot of the cultural and technological issues that I think are going on in our world. So it's something that I'm still constantly interacting with high school and college kids about these topics. And I would think more than anything, that book and the ideas in that book are the reason I'm not with ESPN anymore. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of varying 
factors in addition to that that maybe we can get into very, very gently. But the primary thing is that in the year and a half since that book came out, I'm constantly talking to kids and talking about the ideas, for example, that Maddie went to Penn instead of Lehigh to run track instead of soccer, and that a lot of that decision was made based on other people's perceptions. Right. And then, you know, there a lot of achievement culture that a lot of our kids are dealing with deals with equating success with happiness and that mm. a lot of our high school kids believe that, and, and we, we're teaching them, maybe inadvertently, not that if they get to a certain school, if they get a certain job, that they will feel a certain way. And, and all of this is just flawed. And so I'm, I was constantly, before I decided you know, to leave ESPN, I was constantly saying these things out loud to kids as if I was the authority on them, as if I was implementing them in my own life. And then, so when it came time to really reconciling with how I felt about the sports world, how I felt about my work at ESPN and how much of my desire to re-sign with ESPN was due to how cool other people thought it was, as opposed to really my dedication and passion to the work. And so I really, I didn't want to be, uh, this sounds like I'm so, like courageous or something, but I, I just didn't want to be a fraud to right. myself, let alone like when I went and spoke to kids, like it sounds noble that I can say I didn't want to be a fraud, but really it was more to myself. And for my own quality of life, you know, I, I just, I looked around me at like everyone working at ESPN. I mean, you in particular, I mean, I don't know how you feel inside, but you exhibit a kind of like love and passion for so much of what you're doing. And I, at times I just, I didn't feel that way. And I didn't want to just go with three more years of my life and say, uh, I'm going to do this thing because it seems cool. Um, right. So that, so anyway, I, I took that question somewhere else, but like, those, no, that was yeah. a huge ramification of the I, book. I absolutely, I, I anticipated that this was going to be what you said because I felt so much from you through the process of first writing the story for the magazine and then the book of you struggling with these ideas of um, what we what we decide is successful and how that looks and, and where we have to work or what we have to be doing for that and how that was conflicting with what you were sort of learning or understanding about yourself specifically, but then people in general. Um, you know, when we when you were on last time, we talked about some of what the research was going into the book. And then, of course, I've read it now specifically, and I, and I talk about this actually a lot in conversations with people, the idea that the, the chemical reactions from receiving an empathetic text from someone are not the same as a phone call where you can hear their voice and are not the same as seeing them in person. And so we too often replace genuine interaction with digital interaction. And it's actually affecting the way our brains and our, and our emotions are, are either soothed or encouraged or excited. Um, does that change your life almost instantly when you learn that in terms of your practices with the people around you? It's, you no, know, it's almost like trying to get in shape, you know, if you're all of a sudden, right. you know, running or you have a New Year's resolution. It, I Habitually, I don't want to call people. I don't want to, you know, like I'm, I'm facing a dilemma tonight. One of my good friends from high school who I played basketball with is like in Charleston. And I like I'm doing that thing where like I want to stay in sweatpants and not leave the house. Right? Right. Right. And but, you know, there's so much value in like especially connecting with someone from like your formative years. But so it's, it's a habit where I still lean on texting my mom every morning, you know, 
as opposed to actually hearing her voice. And I, I have to constantly remind myself. And that's what I try to tell, you know, these student athletes when I talk to them at athletic departments, like just try to remind yourself every once in a while that hearing someone's voice is going to feel good in a way you might not even know. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's how I've incorporated you know, that piece into my life is just try to override that habitual nature that I think some of us have developed in wanting to lean into, you know, just staying in and Netflixing and maybe just texting a few people while you're Netflixing, which is like the, the mo- sometimes the most comfortable right. space you can be in um, and try and get out there and just challenge yourself to, that sounds crazy, challenge yourself with a social interaction where like things aren't <laughs> going to go perfectly. Right. Um, but so like those are like- Put on some pants. That, Right. It's really hard, you know, get out of my Nike sweatpants, but I can do it. Um, so like, that's one thing. And, and there's so many things that I can point to in that book. I mean, I'm, I know you, you and I have talked about this, like at length when it comes to like Twitter and Instagram, like leaving ESPN gave me the freedom to just delete both of those things from my phone and not, and not be worried that it was going to impact me long-term. So it was just so much that we could get into. Yeah. The Twitter stuff, when you when you quit when we were on the trifecta together, I remember thinking like I should I should be on it less too like this isn't this isn't good and I've done a, a better job of just not engaging in meaningless arguments and going back and forth than I've tried to just not pick up my phone and look at it for no reason. Um, but it is incredibly necessary for my job if I'm doing three hours of radio every yeah. night and around the horn twice a week and. I just I need to know the jokes as much as the content, right? It's not just even the facts and the info, which you may be able to get from larger long form stories. It's what are people talking about and how are they talking about it? And um, that's a real freedom for you to be able to step outside of that. And that was never really your desire within this industry anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, I never I never wanted to be on TV. I mean, I remember when I was down in Washington, D.C., when I, I wrote a book, my first book was about coming out. You know, I know you know this, but coming out when I played basketball at the University of Colorado, much smaller book, kind of like a niche audience. But I was in D.C. like the human rights campaign just for like a small event. And Tony Reale, our lovely host who around the horn, stopped by. And just in the course of a conversation, he was like, what would you think about being on around the horn? And unequivocally, I was like, that's not what I want to do. I don't. I, I didn't see myself as someone who wanted to be on TV and specifically didn't want to be providing the content that came with being on TV. And, and I, and I would, I said that for a very long time and, but it was all theoretical. Yes. It was Tony Reale. Yes. He was asking me, but it wasn't like, he's like, we want you on now. It was like more of a theoretical question. And now it became a very different matter when I think it was like nine months later, I got an email from, you know, the, the, main producer of around the horn saying we want you to start you know in uh, this date do you want to do it and at that point it just come, it became like a logistical practical matter of like right. i work at a television company this is a huge chance i just it wasn't in my dna to say no to that and as you know at espn in a wonderful way if you start doing around the horn and you're halfway decent at it then all of a sudden other shows are like okay She's proven herself. So when we need fill-ins, we know we can tap her. And it, you know, and fast forward a year, and that I was doing that plus radio plus all of this immersion in the day-to-day sports minutia that like never was what I wanted. I mean, if you if you rewind even when I got into the business, it was be 
it was as a way to pay the bills because I, I wanted to write books, but I knew that right. I couldn't. So then I got into like a day to day, you know, beat writing job and newspaper job. And then I upped it even more and started doing radio and TV, which you need to even be more locked in because it's not just every morning the paper comes out. It's like every minute. And I was getting so far removed from like who I am and what I wanted in the beginning that I, I, but I was so caught up in like, you make more money and, you know, people think you're cooler and people stop you and say, you're on around the horn. And like, right. of course you're human. <laughs> like that stuff's cool. And I was so caught up in all of that, that I was like, I don't know that I can give that up because it's kind of addictive. Yeah. You told me uh, not that far into, into doing it after I started doing it as well, that it made you really nervous and you didn't particularly yeah. enjoy it in the moment. No, but I mean, especially around the horn only because I, I mean, this is scientific, but I was talking to someone about it, like who's a some kind of psychologist that deals with like neural pathways. It was the first TV show I really ever did. And somehow I got like locked into a childhood pattern of like feeling the same panic. On my 150th appearance, I was still feeling the same panic of the first time I did it. And right. that was really, that was weird because I, when I started hosting Outside the Lines, I don't know why, but like, I never really felt nervous. I mean, I remember well, I mean, the around the horn is out. scored, right? It's you're yeah. literally being judged in the moment on whether you did it right or not, right? Yeah. Some and yeah. like it, people are encouraged to call each other out if they mess something up in a playful way, yep. but you're still calling people out if they mess up. And the yep. timing, like it's outside the line. Some of it can be pre-taped or like you don't have to like, oh my god, I have to get this stat in or else this is, I'm running out of time. Ah, and someone's in your yeah. ear like, yeah. wrap it up. Um, so that is a tough first show to do. And I got caught in that, like that neural pathway anxiety. Like every time I sat down in that chair, I was feeling the same way. Hmm. And that wasn't, that wasn't that healthy. I got to a point where later on, I did it for three years. In the beginning, I really, I I didn't love it, but I was watching all the sports. I was like locked into Twitter. By the end of Around the Horn, like the anxiety was even amped because I would go a week without watching any sports. And then the day, you know, the morning of doing around the horn, I would study for four hours. And, you know, I remember when we were hosting radio and Herm Edwards, the coach said like, well, how do you combat nerves preparation? And I was kind of doing these crash courses, which of course I I was getting myself like the top layer prepared, but I knew that if Tony asked me a follow-up question, I wouldn't even know what conference the bills were in, you know, like, (laughs) so then that nervousness kind of got amped up. And that was not, I mean, that's, there's one thing where like nerves signal to you that like you're challenging yourself, but this was not that. Like I did it 150 times. This was something else. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, um, as somebody who loves sports and loves this job, if I have the occasion of even two days in a row where I don't listen to sports radio all day, read articles all day, prep all day, it's such a relief to me. And not because Mm -hmm. I don't like those things. It's just that I get to choose for that day to just whatever I'm interested in, that's what I'm going to read or listen to or look at versus like, if I don't do this, I'm going to be behind and not know enough. When I earlier was projecting onto you that I guess I sense some level of like like passion, commitment, love for obviously Chicago sports in a way that like, I don't feel the same way now. Maybe it's just because the Knicks have been terrible for so long that certain of my teams that I might have loved just have been so bad. It's easy to be apathetic, but when I project that level of like passion still onto you, like does that res- is that is that accurate? It does. I mean, I love around the horn. I love doing this podcast. Um, 
most of the time I love the radio show. The radio show, the only reason I don't love it all the time is because it is every night for four and a half hours when you add in the time that we meet to talk before it starts. And so there isn't a day that goes by where I can just say, I have other things to do right now, or I really want to read this book because I'm instead listening to or or constantly digesting the news of the day, which keeps me from having panic attacks, right? Because I am yeah. always prepared in a way that you didn't have to be every day, which is then how it manifests into, into you know, studying right before. Um, but it does mean that a lot of the time that I used to spend on creative endeavors or being more well-rounded has made me much more one note as a person because so much of my brain space and time is filled by this. Yeah, I don't even know how every, like, I, I would want to just, like, pour a glass of wine at 5 o'clock every once in a while. <laughs> well, <laughs> I used to like, when the show was 7 well, to I mean, 9. You but, can drink one yeah, glass, but. <laughs> oh, I could drink one or two, but now it's 3.30 to 8, so it's like, uh, 3 o'clock's a little early. I'm never really craving yeah. it then. I'd have to do it mid-show. I got to introduce that as a segment. I could be like Kathy Lee and Wine hour. Yeah, <laughs> wine hour. You know, you mentioned the um, trying to get out of your comfort zone and reach out to people on, on the phone or in person in ways that aren't as comfortable as maybe they used to be before we got so stuck on our phones. My friend Marty told me this great thing he does. He actually creates a, he created a spreadsheet of friends that matter to him, particularly ones that don't live in the same place as him. And he jots it down when they talk on the phone. And then if he knows he's got a 40 minute drive or a half hour walk or what, or he just is in the mood to chat, he'll go and he'll find someone and be like, Oh my gosh, I haven't talked to that person in two years. And he'll call him and then he'll mark it down. And then he'll have this like running idea of, you know, people he really does want to still connect with and keep in his life. And it's not always realistic to expect constant conversation, but to force it every once in a while so that you don't lose it forever, which I think is a really cool idea. Yeah. I mean, it's almost what I take away from that too, is just like the amount of structure sometimes you have to build into your life to Mm. keep some of these connection pathways open that I think is very different than it used to be. Although people always lost touch. It's not like technology has like introduced this new idea of, you know, people moving away and moving to different phases of their life. But yeah, like that I, when we got married in October, it was really solidifying for me, one of my decision on ESPN and two of like exactly what Marty's saying. Like I, I, I now keep like a mental spreadsheet of like, okay, you know, these, you know, these are these core people that I have to constantly be building up my relationships with because otherwise I'm going to be just texting and Netflixing. And, and I still text and Netflix like way right. more than I should. Um, you mentioned that you've been doing speaking a lot. Um, are there memorable moments from people coming up to you or interactions with people um, that have even furthered your understanding or maybe made you want to do work on top of what you already did with What Made Maddie Run? Yeah, you know, what's been really interesting for the last year and a half, so uh, since the book came out, I've probably talked to maybe like 20 athletic departments, you know, 10 general student bodies on colleges, and then a handful of high school systems across the country. But when it comes to the athletic departments, I've really had amazing conversations with young athletes who've, like, we've kind of worked through certain ideas as we've talked like in the hour after an event and they just want to chat something they wanted to say that they couldn't say, you know, with the whole athletic department student body in front of them. And a a couple of those ideas have really shaped how I think about our like college sports system now that's a little different than I did before. Um, And like, so just to like share, like so many kids are kind of coming up to me 
and they were articulating this idea that their goals when they stepped onto a college campus as a student athlete were like really misaligned with the goals of the coaches. Uh, but they didn't know how to articulate this. This is kind of what I've landed on. Is like a student athlete, in, you know, maybe you can relate to this at, at, at Cornell. You, no matter how, maybe we set aside like college football, which might, they might like high end might have a different set of goals to get to the pros. But right. a general student athlete steps onto a campus and they, they want to, you know, make new friends, redefine themselves, like certainly get better at their sport, enjoy themselves, have the best four years of their life. And they don't know that their coach obviously is like anywhere from a hundred thousand dollar job to a half a million dollar job to win a championship for the most part. And they feel that clash of misaligned goals in a way that you would be really surprised how acute it is. And of course they're the ones that are bending. And so I, once we kind of like identify this idea of like misaligned goals, I would say for 90% of student athletes, you then kind of share that with coaches and they feel it too. They feel like they're kind of like, you know, being pulled in all directions because they're trying to sell their student athletes on a certain vision that they know isn't reality. And then instead of blaming the system, right? Cause a lot of kids want to leave and quit because this isn't the experience they thought it would be. And you either blame the coach or you blame the student athlete, but no one ever says like, no, this system is just. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so that's a long winded way of saying like, it's really opened my eyes, like the machine of college sports and how, it's really impacting the experience of like the, the everyday student athlete as opposed to like the guy who's going pro. Right. Because we talk a lot about the people going pro and, and how flawed that system is, but maybe not enough about even the non-revenue sports that have a certain amount of pressure as well. So let's get back to the actual decision about ESPN. Yes. And as you said, maybe it needs to be gentle if there are things that uh, we won't want to air on the very uh, on the very network that you feel want to criticize. But you don't have to totally... Um, limit your ability to be honest because everyone's experiences are different and also everybody's desires and, and what they want out of something are different. Um, so they come to you with uh, your deal is going to be up and they come to you with the opportunity to resign and, and go for another couple of years. And what was the thought process and who did you talk to and, and how much of a challenge was it to make the decision? Yeah. So we, we kind of, for a, a number of months, I had like a three year offer on the table and I just was kind of, punting on it like you know my deal wasn't up until the new year and so you know it's like early fall and I'm just kind of kicking the can down the road um and then a, a few things happened um one we got married and it wasn't like the act of getting married that changed my mind it was one small piece of it was that I think you know this at ESPN and maybe a lot of jobs like this like you can go on vacation and you can tell you think everybody at ESPN that you're going on vacation, but you forgot to tell this one radio producer and right. then you're on vacation and they reach out and they're like, this big thing happened in sports. Can you come on sports center? And like, no matter what there's for me anyway, this is how I operate. There's like this like panic and guilt. And like, I could be in Mexico and be trying to find a studio. Yeah. Um, a vacation to me wasn't even a good enough reason to like not respond and not be available. And it wasn't until I was getting married that very week that I felt like it was the first time in seven years at ESPN that I had a good enough reason to just mm. not look at my phone. Mm. And the way I felt in not doing that was so wonderful. 
And I knew that it wasn't like I would feel that way because it was your wedding week. So there's a lot of other things going on. But I was like, how is it that in seven years, this is the first time where I truly feel some sense of release from like the constant pressure right. of like being available. And some um, of that is you too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I obviously felt that in my wedding, but when I go on vacation, I certainly have been in places where I've tried to make it work. And then plenty of other times, especially more in the last couple of years where I've decided I needed to be able to say no, I've just sent back, sorry, on vacation. And I don't feel guilty. I say yeah. that's not realistic for me to never not be on. So totally. maybe that's something though, that like, Depends on your natural way of of being anxious or 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 guilt ridden or whatever about not being available all the time. Yeah, and that's not like an ESPN problem. That's a me problem. Like you know, even Catherine, my wife, would be like, you know, I, I did say no a lot at, at the end, but I would feel so awful about it that I was like, why didn't I just say yes? You know, because I would right. like carry on. I would punish myself for saying no, and like that's just kind of my makeup. And so that was that, you know, that was one piece of it. And, and another piece was simply that like, there, I'm going to say this is like, you know, politically correct as I can, but like there was a time at ESPN for like a couple years where I knew that I didn't want to be talking about like the, the constant everyday of sports. And there seemed to be, this growing appetite for that kind of employee at ESPN. And there were a lot of different ways where I thought, you know what, I could probably create some space for myself at ESPN where like I'm doing the kind of work I want to do. And it really did get in that last year after, you know, Jamel Hill left and, you know, a couple other things went down where I started to realize that it felt a little bit more to me like if I wanted to be valuable to ESPN, I was going to have to lean back into just the everyday of sports. That was my personal perception of it. And as we've discussed at length on this podcast, like that, that wasn't really where I ever wanted to be. And so, and like, why shouldn't, you know, ESPN's a sports network. Like why, if I, if I had these desires to kind of step away from that and like find some niche area, that wasn't going to be as valuable to them. And I needed to recognize that. And so if you combine that with my previous admission that I'm going to be like panicky all the time, if I'm not providing value, I didn't want to get into a three year contract where I was like in a constant state of like guilt and anxiety because I was saying no to these things that I knew were valuable to them because I didn't want to do them. And like trying to do these niche things that weren't as valuable, like that was just going to lead to three years of just panic and anxiety. You mentioned Jamel, um, you know, she, she was, a different situation, but still was able to make the choice that it was beneficial to her as well as the company to part ways and to go do other things. And I saw her in LA recently and she's, she's super busy, but in a totally different way and doing a, a ton of stuff and very happy. Um, and I think for a long time, it was very clear to people that when you left ESPN, it was sort of like, okay, you'll be forgotten or there isn't really a space that can provide the same. And in a lot of ways, it's still true. It's very much where you're going to get your everyday sports. It's on everywhere. It's what people go to. It's what they land on. Um, but how do you decide that you feel not afraid of going and seeking the freedom of something else, of rejecting what is by far and away the, the mothership, the, the end all be all the place that everyone wants to land if they work in sports. I think when, you know, this idea of like fear, it was very clear to me at the end that the only reason 
I, w- I would have re-signed was because I was afraid of what would happen if I didn't. And I just didn't think that was a good enough reason. Um, and, I, and I was in a, you know, it might be the last time in my life where I was in a place where, like, I don't have kids. Like, I had worked at ESPN for seven years, so, you know, I had, a, you know, I had enough that I could, like, live for a year and figure out exactly what I wanted my future to look like. Like, I, I had all of these things going for me where, it was like, if I was going to take a chance on myself, that it was going to have to be in that moment. Like, I just don't know, and I don't know how many people can relate to this, but, like, I played basketball, and I started when I was, you know, 12, 10, and then I played pro and I kind of stopped when I was like 23. So like 10 years. And I was like, I, I, I love this thing. And by the end, I didn't want to play basketball anymore. And then I was like, I'll get into journalism and, you know, sports. And then I did that for 10 years. And kind of by the end I had lost, it didn't, it didn't feel the way it had. And this is very like millennial of me, but I was like, I need a new challenge. You know, yeah. I, I want to inhabit a different world and see if, you know, these things that I had wanted to do when I was really young, you know, like write a fiction, write, write a novel and write scripts and like maybe, you know, even do something that felt more like hands-on, like, you know, I'm like, I want to go be like a bartender or a barista like one day a week, like things where I just felt like it would be these different life experiences. Like I wanted some of that. There's always this like contest in any sort of job where people like the thing that you work at to prove that it, it means something to you in the way that it does to other people. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I've always felt that I really love sports, but I also love other things. And so I've gotten to a point where I'm really okay if somebody thinks that they love sports more than I do, because mm-hmm. some of my time is going to be spent with music and literature and other things, travel and whatever. Was there any part of you that feels, even if it's unnecessary or unfair, guilt about being able to just so easily say, oh, I'm just not interested in any of this. Not at all, because it was like, it was a steady slope downward, you know? And at, like, even in the months before, like eight months ago, nine months ago, and, you know, those dudes will come up to you and they're like, want to talk about Le'Veon Bell or something, right? And, and because they're big Steelers fans. And like, I got to a point where I was perfectly fine if he was hyper knowledgeable about everything happening in Pittsburgh. And like, I had to like, listen to him and ask him questions. Like I had no, I had no ego wrapped up in that unless, of course, unless some guy was being like a dick about it. But otherwise I was perfectly fine to not be the expert at sports, which is like not a great place to be if you are literally (laughs) an expert at sports. Hey everybody, don't forget to go to ESPN and Apple Podcasts and subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. So you always have the latest episode Don't forget to rate and review it as well and tell all your friends how awesome it is. On the last podcast, when we talked about ESPNW and where that came in timing for your life as you were still kind of becoming more comfortable expressing who you were and talking about the things that you connected with personally, you said you sort of found your voice and you felt it was okay to write stories and content on women, to search a little bit harder and find interesting things that not only connected with your experience, but that other people would find compelling if you just presented them with it instead of feeling like because you as a for this industry marginalized person being a woman and being lgbtq um you didn't originally want to write about marginalized things and then you found this joy in in connecting with them um how much does that shape even that working at w and what you did there your decision and your sort of confidence in being able to leave 
probably a, a lot because I, in an abstract way in that there's one thing I know for sure is like, I know what my voice is. I'm not, I didn't leave ESPN cause I'm like floundering and I'm unsure. Obviously that would be a reason to stay, you know, like to have some kind of security and being at ESPNW and like really understanding more than anything like applying my brain to these like problems, quote unquote, it just taught me how to use my mind to think about things and come up with like what I think are somewhat interesting angles on these things that are happening in our world. And learning that skill, I think is applicable to pretty much anything that you want to do. And so I learned all of that by writing about Addy SPNW and all of those things we were covering. And I was like, this is not just like, I need to continue writing columns for SPNW. It's like, I want to be able now to, you know, be in front of our young people at high schools and colleges and like communicate with them directly and learn more, you know, from them and be able to share all these things I've learned, like in a way that's offline because it's kind of over the online part. So I think you're right in that it did kind of give me this, this confidence and like what I like what my skill set was and a belief that I could apply that to other things whenever I decided what those other things were. Sometimes when you get a break, um, you can really tell what, what you miss and what you like and, and then what you're relieved to not be doing. Have you missed anything in the time that since you have, have had, you know, a, what I'd like to call an organic pause? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, um, I've missed, just like the banter of like our everyone out around the horn, not the on air, but you know, like that, that is like one of the core, I'm sure maybe Levitard is similar, but the, the around the horn family yeah. is a really cool little network to be a part of. For sure. And I kind of miss feeling like I'm in the in group on that. But if you talk about actual like day to day stuff, I feel like it was the best decision I ever made. I mean, I, I go see my dad a lot now and, you know, he loves sports. We might, so like I, through osmosis, I can pretty much tell you like the broad strokes of what's happening in the sports world. You know, like I'm aware Anthony Davis wanted to be traded from the Pelicans, but like if I wasn't doing that, if I wasn't around him as much, I wouldn't even, like I wouldn't even be able to tell you some of those things. And I don't miss that because I really did need a detox from sports and I needed you know, I had never, sorry, I'm kind of like all over the place on that one. But like, I, even when I stopped playing college basketball, I, I was like, I don't want to be defined by sports. I felt so strongly that I didn't want to get into coaching because it was like the next thing every athlete did. And then I, and I, I did something a little different, but like, I was still being defined by sports. And I'm hoping that like, I can figure out ways over the next year or two to, to like define who I am in ways outside of that, even though like, I love that connection to sports. So there's really not like, there's not much I missed because it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, so your contract, um, I mean, technically you were done, uh, was it in November or was it no- December that you finished working? Um, I, like I did my last, like outside the lines, I think it's December 1st. So it's been just a couple months. Um, yeah, December, what, yes, almost two and a half, three months. 
what have you been doing? Or have you just been, I know you've been to Napa. I know you've been to Paris. I know you've been being cute with your wife on Instagram because that's where I've been following along with your life um, and having FOMO. But um, work-wise or anything else, have you just allowed yourself the time to figure out what's next or are you actively pursuing what's next? Um, I was really like lucky in that a few months ago, I kind of like, I, I stumbled into this guy who lives in Charleston. He's a journalist. He was like writing this, um, story for like a Charleston magazine and we got coffee. And then he, it, it just so happened like he had moved from Hollywood where he lived for 15 years. And he was basically the only person writing scripts who was in Charleston. And so we've spent the last like few months developing like a couple ideas and like writing, you know, treatments and stuff. And like, I just love it because it's like this new way. It's what I love to do, write and tell stories. But it's such, it's a new challenge because I, I didn't even know the format. Like I, I, I used to joke that like, I always wanted to write a script, but then like, I didn't even know how to like tab in the first scene, you know? And I was exactly. like, I like hit, totally. I hit that hurdle and I like <laughs> fell down and didn't try again for five years. <laughs> um, so that's pretty cool just because it's like, I, you know, we may, it it may be a total failure, but it's been the first time in like five years where when I wake up, I'm like, oh my God, like I'm going to just work on that treatment and talk about it. And it's cool. And, um, so there's that. And then, you know, I'm still taught, I'm still speaking about what made Maddie run, which is really mostly just enriching to be around high school and college age students and student athletes and like hear their ideas and hear what's going on. We're working on our podcast, my wife and I, um, and like trying to turn it into something bigger. Um, and there's a couple other little projects I'm working on, but more than anything, I'm like, you know, I might get off the phone with you now and like watch Outlander for a couple hours, you know, <laughs> and like not feel guilty about it. And like, that's actually been a huge relief. And more than anything, even being off social has just been so nice to try to like get my brain back. Uh, the podcast is free cookies, by the way, if people want to listen to Thanks, Kate, Sarah. Kate and Catherine, they can find it everywhere you get your podcasts. Um, you know, it's interesting listening to you because as much as I actually love what I do, um, I would like to just do less of it or have like two extra days a week where I didn't do my job so that mm-hmm. I don't feel guilty when I relax because I do feel guilty when I relax because I am constantly aware that there are things I should be doing instead of watching a TV show yeah. or reading a book that doesn't have anything to do with my job. Um, well, okay. Sorry. What, what's your, I mean, I'm, it's like, I'm a therapist here, but I'm like, <laughs> is your, it, like when you think about it, are you like, you know what? I'm on this path and like, you have it. You're like, I'm going to hustle for this time period because it's going to have this. Like I see this goal on the horizon because that was my big struggle. It was like, I didn't have a goal, right? I didn't want my own show. And so I was like, what am I on this treadmill for? Whereas I feel I've always felt about you. Like there was like, there was like this, like, destination in a way. Right. That's the problem I'm having right now. I don't have a specific destination. I have some ideas. And so I am on the, I'm going to keep on this because I enjoy it and it's good right now until I figure out that there's something else I want or I don't enjoy it anymore. I just am not very good at not overdoing it. Um, and what I say is, oh, I, I really got to push, push, push until I get my next contract and then it won't feel like I have to overdo it so much. And then I get the contract. I'm like, okay, now I have to prove that I deserve the contract. Right. And yep. so I don't ever really get to the point where I feel like 
I can just chill. And that's 100%. It's definitely part of the job, but it's also just me as a human being. I, I'm not so good at relaxing, <laughs> um, but I would like to more often. And then I, and then I feel guilty about it. And it's like a constant spiral, right? Um, but I'm listening to you talk about it. And, you know, in some ways it's specific to this crazy industry, but in other ways, it's just something that people come across when they get older, which is this idea of, wanting to have their life to do what they want with it, but understanding mm-hmm. that work is necessary, right? And so yeah. I think sometimes I also feel guilty when I get frustrated or overwhelmed because I'm like, well, I could be at um, an office from 8.30 to 6 every day and not enjoy what I'm doing, right? Like everybody's yeah. got to work. And in the end, I, I like what I'm doing and I feel so blessed that I like what I'm doing that I shouldn't even complain or seek out something that's even more satisfying because I already have it so good. Um, do you feel like whatever you're working on now eventually will take up too much time and then you'll say, oh, it's too much again? Like, is it is it about finding the thing that, that you always want to do or do you think it's always going to be that you need a very particular work-life balance? Um, I think, because this is something that I struggled with a lot deciding to leave ESPN was, the per- not other people's perception, but me thinking that maybe I've gotten really jaded and clouded, right? Because how ridiculous is it that like I was writing about sports and like talking on this fun show about sports and I didn't want to do it anymore. Like that, I can, I can step back and say that sounds absurd. And, and like, I was struggling with that, like that the idea of this dream job, I think for a lot of people wasn't, fulfilling me and so I I think one I I felt like I had been very much kind of like you since I was 12 I remember putting up like a and I'm not saying you do this but I I put up a chart on my bedroom wall it was a monthly calendar and I would make a new one and I would write down whatever I'd done that day to get better at basketball and Mm. like I, you know, be like, run 1.5 miles, take 300 shots, you know, lift the weight, play pickup for an hour. And I really felt like until I decided not to renew with ESPN and I was 37, it was 25 years. I know people like are on the treadmill for, you know, until they're 70, but like 25 straight years where I felt like my only priority was this achievement, some level of whatever the achievement was. And then once I got at the next level, like 25 straight years is like not really taking a deep breath. And so I, you know, I hope that it's not like now I'm like in need of some like perfect calibration. I don't think that's it. I think it was just like, I needed to take a deep breath. And in addition, even if some, like, even if my job seemed like a dream job to a lot of people, it was never really what I wanted to do. And eventually you have that little voice in your head that's like, you know, you have this passion, you know, to like write books and like really drive your own storytelling in a way that you're not doing. And I I felt that way since I was 12. Like I was like, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And then I didn't really do that. I did like a parallel course of that. And I wanted to listen to that little voice. And I was lucky enough that like I looked around and like I had the means to be able to take that deep breath. And I was like, why waste that if, like, I have this opportunity right now? Yeah, I mean, that completely resonates with me um, because you do want to at least try the thing you most wanted to do. 
um, and then hope that you can land back either where you were that was adjacent or somewhere else, but not always wonder if you hadn't tried it. Um, but what yeah. you said is also very necessary, which is that you had the means to be able to make that jump. Is there a part of you that fears that whatever lifestyle you've gotten used to goes away or worries that right now you say this is more important than X or Y and then you'll find down the road this wasn't right for me in terms of right. the way I wanted to live or how I wanted to work or now I'm not being listened to or heard or valued anywhere in the spaces as big as where I was before? I think that there's definitely that voice in my head that it's only, you know, it's been only been two and a half months and like, you, you know, it, you can imagine right now, it's like, that's really just enough time. Like I had a lot of commitments. I, you know, I, that's not a ton of time to be like relaxed and what, you right. know, and fully <laughs> occupying this like new life that I want to live. Um, so I am worried that you fast forward, you know, if you ever want to do a podcast with me again in a year, right? Like I would be like, oh my God, like I can't get my footing, you know? Right. And I haven't had a paycheck in a year and like, I don't want to, you know, and now I'm above like writing a column for $500, right. Quote unquote, you know, above like, as in that's not how I want to make my money. And so yes, there's that voice in my head. That's like, you know, kind of hitting the panic button sometimes. But then I just remind myself, like, I like, I'm smart, you know? And like, I, there was a lot of things I brought to ESPN. And if I apply myself on new projects and I'm willing to like, be open about what those might be and what those are. Like I, I will, I will bring value to those as well. So like I try to override with that, even though, yeah, like, you know, I, I sound so shallow, but I'm like, Oh, you know, when I'm go out in Charleston, everybody's like, Oh yeah, Kate works for ESPN. And like, they still say that, right. you know, I, that's how I get introduced. Like, Oh, this is Catherine and her wife, Kate, she works for ESPN. So like people think it's really cool down here. And like, I don't correct them right now, you know? Like, sometimes I will, sometimes I don't. Sometimes when people ask me what I do, I'm like, I used to work for ESPN, but I'm like, does that have the shelf life of, like, saying Happy New Year? You know, like, how long <laughs> am I allowed to say I used to work for ESPN? I don't want to get caught up. In... So anyway, all of these things are going on right now, but it's too, it feels like too soon to be able to understand, where, like, whether I massively messed up or not. <laughs> right. Totally. <laughs> totally. So right um, now I'm just excited I could go watch Homelander, I mean, out, you know, Outlander and, like, yeah. make a cocktail if I wanted to. Or Homeland, for that matter, which I think is also a good show uh, from back <laughs> in the day. Um, you you um, you met Catherine a couple years ago. How long ago now was that? Um, three and a half. I was going to say this is not a quiz, but if you get it wrong, I'm going to make sure she listens. Um, <laughs> um, I think the person that we share our lives with very much has an impact on what we want to do and how we see the world. And I don't know her that well. We've interacted a handful of times. I've hung out with her a couple of times. But um, her social presence is very much about um, self-awareness and living in the moment and um, like really digging deep into who we are and what we want and finding, you know, finding what lies beneath the surface. Um, How much do you think your relationship with her and maybe who she is and how she sees things affected whether or not you thought that that crazy type A path climbing up the ladder at ESPN was worthwhile or not? I think we both reflected honesty back on each other because, you know, she had been dealing with something similar when it came to like her yoga career. You know, she wanted to break out of that and like make an impact in other areas and like food and fashion. And she was really struggling because, you know, as, as I might soon find out if people like, Oh, Kate works in sports and she worked at ESPN 
And so these are the, these are the five jobs we think she's able to do. And, th- and that's kind of what she was going through for a long time was like, you're, you know, she's, she's an awesome yoga teacher. And so it'd be like, here are the things that we think you can expand of out of, out of yoga. But among those were not, you know, necessarily like food and fashion. And so since I've known her, she's been kind of trying to redefine herself. But then also, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll hear her say, but like, maybe I just need to go back and like, you know, just focus on, you know, growing my yoga career because this doesn't seem to be working. And I'm like, no, I have to reflect back on her. Like, it's always hard when you're trying to transition out of something and like get people to take you seriously in another area. And also, I know that that's not what you're like, that's not where what's going to like challenge you the most. And so when I was going through this, there were all kinds of times before I decided not to resign where like, I mean, she would get kind of, I bet, kind of frustrated because like one week I'd be like, what am I crazy? Of course I'm going to resign. It's a three year deal, <laughs> you know, with financial security. It's, you know, when you know this about ESPN, like you'll go through, well, I, w- I remember looking at you and being like, oh my God, she's working nonstop until <laughs> infinity. <laughs> but like, I had kind of found a good groove where like I would fill in for Bob Lee. I would like, you know, I did around the horn, I would write, you know, and like I, I would carve out times where like, there'd be a five day span where like I'd ha- I'd be able to have a little bit of freedom. So I'm like, why would I ever leave that? And she would, you know, just say like, okay, but last week you felt really strongly that you needed to challenge yourself. <laughs> and she would just kind of like reflect my own roller coaster nature back to me. And so that's been really helpful. And just, and just knowing like you have a partner who is like, you can't make every transition at once. And we had, we have stability and love. And so that's the most important thing. And so this career stuff will figure itself out. And I think that was obviously, you know, you're married. Like that's a huge comfort when you have that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, and it is interesting how the person that you're with sort of becomes a mirror to you. So if you're having great success and they aren't, it's, it can be complicated. If you're both yep. succeeding, it feels like everything is easy breezy. And if you're both not in a good place, it's hard sometimes it either you either help each other out of it or you're both, you know, needing you too cycle much downward. Right, right, right. Um, well, I'm fascinated to see what happens next. In a lot of ways, um, I'm listening to you and I'm I'm super jealous because you know I think all writers have this idea of like, oh, it would be great to do X or Y, and you're completely right. They're like, well, I wouldn't even know what the first line of that looks like, so I won't try it. <laughs> right, and like even yeah. if you could pick up a book or talk to someone and they could help you, it's still that fear of trying that you're like, I'll just stick with what I'm doing because it's close enough. Um, so mm-hmm. it's amazing that you're getting to sort of um flex a little bit and see what else you're into and and what you might want to use your talent for. Um. And I do hope that we will chat again maybe in a year or so and see how it's going. And, uh, you know, of course, we would love to. Are you? Do you ever feel the desire to speak on something specific? Like, will we ever find that Kate wrote a guest column for somewhere because some issue was so you, you wanted your voice to be heard? Not in the short term. I think I, I'm really interested in, like, telling stories that take a really long time to set up and write and I, I don't right now feel that I'm needed or uh, educated at this point to like respond to some of the, the kind of the day-to-day stuff that's going on. I think that was a certain time in my right. life and and now I don't feel like, I feel like there's so many, like I feel like when you and I were kind of coming up in ESPNW there was no one saying the things we were saying and now I feel like it's not like it's fixed or anything, but I feel like there's a number of voices who 
are there to respond and to have that smart, incisive criticism when certain things go down in the sports world. And I don't feel like that's totally where I'm needed anymore. I agree with that for sure, which has been really nice to see for sure. Um, yeah. To feel like you can sit back and be like, this person's going to handle it versus like, oh, no, no, call me. No one will say it if I don't say <laughs> yeah, it. Exactly. Well, I guess then the only chance we'll get to see you is your limited not on your phone. So you must access, access it via your computer Instagram feed. That's yeah, it. That's, that's all so, we get. All right, so that's it. The once every two weeks post <laughs> is all you get. <laughs> and then the lucky ones of us that have your phone number will get to text you during Netflix, occasionally call, or potentially yeah. see you in person in a city somewhere. That's Crazy. it. That's all we get. Oh, man. <laughs> all right. Well, that's going to be very disappointing for a lot of listeners that we're hoping you would be immediately popping up somewhere where they could get their Kate Fagan fix because I still get it a lot on my social media. I miss Kate. What's she doing? I don't know. Aww. Well, now I know, but I cannot help them. So <laughs> <laughs> now before uh, we go, did you want my insight on like the NBA trading deadline or anything? Yeah, like that? for because... sure. I really want you to tell me whether you think it was the Pelicans or the Lakers that initially leaked the deal. Who's who had more yeah. impetus to do so? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, cause I saw about seven minutes of sports center three weeks ago. So I'm your person. <laughs> Well, I loved catching up with you, and I'm happy that you sound happy and so inspired to go on and do wonderful things. And I look forward to whatever screenplay or book that you work on. Um, and, yeah, don't completely disappear from Instagram, though. We need to at okay, least check in you. on your shoes, if not anything else. I might make my wife put up an Instagram because she has my Instagram on her phone. So there you I go. appreciate that. There you go. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon, Kate. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Oh, and another thing. This week's That's What She Read is a two-parter. Two stories I want you to check out. One is the Washington Post headline is How a Seventh Grader's Strike Against Climate Change Exploded into a Movement. It's by Sarah Kaplan about a 13-year-old named Alexandria Villasenor who is one of many young, fierce female activists behind the school strikes for climate movement. On March 15th, tens of thousands of kids in at least two dozen countries are going to skip school to protest and demand that nations commit to cutting fossil fuel emissions. And their message is that kids are done waiting for adults to save their world. I saw this story and I was so unbelievably impressed with her and the rest of the younger generation demanding things that are going to affect them more than any of us and being willing to step out and say, if you're not going to make the changes necessary, we're going to do it ourselves and we're going to force you to. Uh, I've been lately finding myself captioning a lot of stories like that with, I believe the children are our future, an obvious joke cliche that's becoming more and more true as I see these younger generations doing unbelievable things. Uh, I've thought the same thing when I saw the ESPNW story by Wayne Dre's. The headline's nine-year-old girl calls out Chuck E. Cheese's MLB for game that taunts, hey, there's always softball. It's a nine-year-old girl in Chicago, Marie Markham. Lives out in the suburbs, went to Chuck E. Cheese and was playing an MLB-licensed throwing game. And as she was throwing the balls at the target, she heard the game chirp, hey, there's always softball. And she'd been playing that sport since she was four years old. She was furious and she didn't understand why they were making fun of her, the game she loves. So she actually wrote a letter to MLB and there have been statements from both MLB and the game manufacturer that they're going to make a change. And I just love that. I love young girls especially taking this kind of stuff into their own hands and saying we're not going to wait for the adults to fix it. More power to you, ladies. And thanks to you guys for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said.